Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a 27-year-old And with me tonight, I'm hearing some feedback here. With me tonight is my co-host, Phil Grimaldi, straight out of Brooklyn, retired detective Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm uh, looking forward to digging oh, into this some interesting case. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be fantastic. Um, and uh, with with us tonight, of course, is our guest, legendary Manhattan District Attorney, retired now a defense attorney in his own practice, Dan Bibb. Hey, Dan, how are you? I'm good, guys. How are you, how are you guys doing? Good. I was a little nervous. I, uh, you know, I I I, I, I think I missed the second B in your name, and that's why the. Uh, the stream yard wasn't going through, but, uh, Hey, Hey, listen, you know, people take a B off to add an S and, you know, I get no respect. <laughs> listen, we have a new trailer. And before I introduce the show, I want to play our new trailer and we're going to come right back. But my son actually edited this for us and, um, he's, I'm very proud of it. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stop in Tampa for Randy Michael Barger. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Pretty cool, pretty cool. You know? I like that. That was that was good. That yeah, was my, well, well, my son is actually an, an editor by profession, but you, you know, I want to say that he did this for me for free, but he didn't. It cost me three hundred and fifty bucks. So, uh, but it, he actually had to buy. Wait, the, you gotta listen. You gotta wait cheap, man. <laughs> but hey, I had to hey, pay for the music too. You know, the hey, music is pay the kid what he's worth. Would you? I did. I did. But I paid for you, his college you're too. Cheap, cheap SOB. You. <laughs> you know, Dan. Oh, they don't appreciate that. I'm sure you have your daughters. You paid for their college, maybe even law school. You know, they don't appreciate it, right? Billy, hey, this is hey, 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 Bill. Out of the Patreon is it? <laughs> Bill, that's why I'm still working. That's true. Pay for education. Billy, Billy, this isn't your son that cut out of the Patreon, is it? No, no, it's a, it's the other son. These guys, okay. one one Dan cuts out of paying uh, our Patreon for a damn seven dollars a month, and I was like, "You prick!" I go, "You can't pay seven dollars a month to watch our show." <laughs> oh God! Milwaukee civilian, thank you so much for the nineteen ninety nine super chat. Very much appreciated, uh, guys. One of the reasons we brought Dan Bibb on tonight. Uh, besides the fact that he's a good friend and a fantastic district attorney and now a fantastic defense attorney, is he had a real infamous case back in the, in 2000. And it was actually featured recently on the 2020, right? It was a... Yeah, it was the... Uh, 2020 did a two-hour piece on on a case that uh, Steve Sirocco, my close friend, and still my close friend and colleague, tried in... Uh, Began investigating actually in '97, charged in '99, and tried in 2000 of a doctor who killed his wife and uh, dumped her out of an airplane over the Atlantic Ocean. So, now, Dan, one of the biggest reasons, 
yeah, one of the biggest reasons we wanted to bring you on is because we have a case that we're gonna we're gonna sort of marry up to this at the end. But we first want to, of course, talk about this case, and that's what we want to uh, put together is that the difficulties of prosecuting a homicide case without a body being recovered. And now this Dr. Bierenbaum uh, was a young. Here he is a picture of him and his wife, Gail Katz. That's probably back when they were very young. I don't know if that's before they were married. Here's a picture of them when they were getting married. But he seemed to be um, like a, a young boy genius. He was a Renaissance man. He spoke several languages. He was a, a surgeon, a, a plastic surgeon. And he also was a pilot. He flew an airplane. But he, it turned out he was quite an abusive husband. Do you want to uh, talk about that? Well, um, he not necessarily physically abusive. Um, I think he was more mentally abusive and controlling. There were their relationship really got bad soon after they were married. Um, he, according to all the people that we talked to, and many of whom testified at trial, um, he was extremely controlling um, to the to the point that she, when she was actually studying for the graduate record exams, he came home one night and caught her having a cigarette on the, their balcony on the Upper East Side and strangled her to the point of unconsciousness for smoking a cigarette. I'd say that's pretty physically abusive, though. <laughs> that, I, there were, that was the only allegation of physical abuse, but the mental abuse and controlling nature of where they went, what they did, who they saw, who she could be with, who she could be friends with, um, that was part of their lives. Um, he was in control of the relationship. Interestingly enough, um, they lived in a very famous building, um, moving on up to the east side. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the name of the show now. It's slipping my Jeff mind. Jefferson. There you go. The Jeffersons. They lived in that building. And, of course, his father owned the apartment and paid the, and, and paid the mortgage. So Dan, they lose their question, um, I'm getting an echo here. Yeah, I am too. Uh, I have a question about the smoking though. What was she a smoker and she wasn't supposed to be smoking on the terrace, or he didn't know she was hiding it from him? I think you know, she smoked when she was under stress, which I don't know how often it was. Her friends really never described her as a steady smoker, but there were times when there was stress in her life uh, with regards to her educational career that she would occasionally have a cigarette. But I'm, I'm just trying to get out what set him off about the fact that she was smoking on the terrace because that does that seems very a matter of factly for me. I mean, was it like you know that's not like a mortal sin smoking a cigarette on the terrace? And they uh, according the according to Robert Birnbaum, it was. Okay. So, so like he was rabidly, rabidly anti smoking. Okay. Okay. Now I get it. Now I get it. Okay. 
So, Dan, one of the things that I want our audience to understand here is that uh, Gail Katz, who is Robert Birnbaum's wife, went missing in 1985, correct? August of 1985, correct. Okay, and, and you didn't get this case until 2000. That- no, we 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 got the case in '97. Okay. Uh, Andy Rosenzweig, much credit to Andy Rosenzweig, uh, retired um, NYPD captain, and then in '97 was the chief investigator for the Manhattan DA's office. Had approximately probably 40 or 50 investigators working under him. Uh, brought the case to Steve Sirocco and me after we had done a case together with him. Um, I, we had done a double homicide with him, and he brought the case to us and said, I think you would like to take a look at this. That's uh, Steve Sirocco on the uh, on the Right, on right 2020. Now. Yeah, and uh, we read through the files and said, absolutely, we would – Love to take a look. Um, and, wh- and what did you what did you think when you first looked at it of your six uh, your potential of getting a conviction? Well, I don't. I, you know, when when we first looked at it, we didn't go in. Only first of all, when you're doing cold cases, you go have to go in with them into them with an open mind. You can't go into them with a conclusion that you've already reached. Uh, Andy of Andy of course told us that he thought that. Bob Birnbaum had killed his wife. But, you, you know, we've got to put that out of our minds and go into it with an open mind. Look at what what has been done um, and redo everything that's been done in the past and then move forward. So the first things we did were we went out and we interviewed all of the people that had been interviewed, um, friends and relatives. Um, obviously, his family was we didn't want to clue his family in, in the beginning, but all of her friends. Uh, and then we tracked down where they moved. They moved to Las Vegas. Stephanie Youngblood uh, testified at trial. Um, one of his many conquests out in Las Vegas. So, you know, we followed him around wherever he went after he moved from New York and that was to Las Vegas and then to Minot, North Dakota. Uh, and we interviewed every witness that had been interviewed in the past. We searched out witnesses that had never been interviewed. And strikingly after he was charged, we started getting phone calls from people who had seen who basically seen it on the news said hey i think we have information that you should know about you know one of whom was the we thought we knew who he was his first girlfriend after his wife disappeared was we were wrong literally the day after he was charged i got a call from a woman in california who refused to identify herself for a week telling me that she that we should talk to her when I finally convinced her to identify it, she told me a whole bunch of things. She ended up testifying at trial. Her name was Karen Caruana. She ended up testifying at trial. And when she finally told us what she knew, 
Steve, Steve and I were on a plane to California the next day to go out and meet her. And then we were contacted by, like, we knew that he was hanging out in the Hamptons after his wife disappeared. We knew he had, he, he and his wife had a share in a house in the Hamptons. We didn't know where, we didn't know who, we didn't know anything until my phone rings and I have on the phone a woman who says, I think I know something about this. Um, she lived in, actually lived in Livingston, New Jersey. And the next day I went out to Livingston, New Jersey and interviewed her. Then she told us about other women that were in the house with them. And we got in touch with them immediately. And the woman who had called me was Susan DeAndrea. She testified at trial. Another woman who she told us was in the house, the owner of the house, was Dolores Erickson. She testified at trial. So the the case didn't, the investigation didn't end with his indictment. It continued after his indictment because people, it was it was all over the press when he was arraigned. And people were calling us with information from California, from New York, from New Jersey. So it just didn't stop with him being charged. It continued. Dan, and let me let me just can I just ask you a question sure. now? Um, with with this case, I mean, it it obviously it laid dormant for uh, well, what would have been like um, twelve years? Would it be? No, they it was actively investigated by missing persons and the 19th squad and the, D the the DA's office participated through probably 87, but it still was investigated sporadically, periodically by missing persons and the 19th squad through 1989. It seemed and, like and, the family, it seemed like the family was involved in regards to not uh, letting this go. They were convinced that he had killed them from the very beginning. Uh, Elaine, Elaine Katz, Gail's sister, was convinced early on um, that he had killed her. And she was convinced early on that he had flown her out over the ocean and dumped her body. Um, and it turns out she was right. Um, so Elaine didn't let it rest. She was in periodic contact with people in the DA's office. She was in periodic contact with people in missing persons. Um, Tommy O'Malley was the missing person detective who, who, by the way, I'm friends with and am still in touch with. I, I talked to Tommy probably once a month. Um, hey, Dan, uh, did, yeah. uh, did he know, did, uh, did the perpetrator, uh, Dr. Birnbaum know that this investigation was going on? Did he have any clue? No, he had no idea until so he, he, he didn't know that he was the subject of the, uh, that, that it seemed like he was responsible. He had no clue. No, from, we didn't let him know. Probably. I don't remember exactly when it was. I think it was February of 99. Um, he was living in Minot, North Dakota. The cold, by the way, the coldest place in the lower 48 States in lower 48. Um, I went to Vegas a couple of times on the case, went to a number of other places, but Minot, North Dakota, I was not going to in February. 
So we sent some. Unless you were sitting uh, at a bar in, in North Dakota. <laughs> a hot toddy in front yeah, of a fireplace. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, we sent Andy Rosenzweig, the chief, and uh, our investigator, Tommy Pond, flew out to Minot and did a dawn raid on him coming out of his house saying, you know, Dr. Birnbaum, we're from the Manhattan DA's office. We'd like to talk to you about his wife, uh, about your wife. And he nearly fainted. Wow. Um, and he caught himself and said, uh, I'm not talking to you. I'm represented by an attorney. And, you know, you know I sent him out there with instructions. Listen, this is what you got to say. Are you still represented by the attorney that was representing you back in 1985? He said, yes, they ceased any attempt to question him at that point. But 14 uh, years later, it seems like he thought he got away with it. I mean, if he almost fainted. No, no, no there's no doubt he thought he got away with it. Yeah. But uh, uh, it was a, about an hour later, I got a call from his lawyer. And he said, you know, what the hell, Dan, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, Scott, we've reopened the investigation into the disappearance of his wife. Uh, he's obviously a target. We wanted to see if he was still represented by you. Given the lapse of time, we didn't know whether he was your relationship had continued. Um, he, you know, screamed and yelled at me about how unethical I was sending detectives to talk. <laughs> and I said, Scott, I said, lighten up. I said, you know, your client's got more problems than just us trying to talk to him. Uh, he immediately said, I am shipping you all. If you present this case to the grand jury, I'm, my client wants to testify. And I said, Scott, we welcome your client's testimony before the grand jury. Uh, of course, he never did. And then it was shortly after that that a long-term grand jury was impaneled and uh, evidence began to be presented. And ultimately, an indictment was returned. And um, we negotiated his surrender. Um, he was released on half a million dollars bail. Uh, and in went to trial in September into October of 2000. And there was probably about a, a week of pretrial hearings and then five weeks of trial. And he was actually swiftly convicted. Uh, he, they called one witness that we turned over to them that said that who who said that he had seen her at a time when our theory was that she was already dead um he was proven to be mis well-meaning but mistaken um the jury went out i believe it was on a wednesday afternoon late in the afternoon they deliberated for an hour or so they came back the next day. They delivered for deliberated for maybe another hour, hour and a half, two hours, and they convicted them. So it really wasn't, you know. And I, I thought that jury delivery, you know, based on my experience, having done many, many homicide trials by then, 
that this was either going to be a swift acquittal or a long conviction. In other words, if the jury came back quickly, they would acquit him. It would take them longer to analyze the evidence and convict them. So when we got word that the jury had come back with a verdict, uh, Steve and I and another colleague who also was involved in the trial were out in the hallway saying, I said, listen, guys, I think we got to be prepared. And we were all kind of shook our heads and said, yeah, I, this may not be good. But uh, the jury saw it for what it was. Um, you know, there was not just... Uh, and, and the thing is, although there were never any direct admissions by him, his words throughout the years were the bulk of the evidence that convicted him. There was always the common theme of him, of her walking out of the apartment on a Sunday morning and not returning. But he lied repeatedly, often to many different people about what happened after that. What, what led up to it and what happened after it, what he did after it. One of the things that he didn't tell anybody, which took a while for the DA's office to uncover, was that um, he went out that afternoon and flew a plane for two hours out of Essex County Airport from Colwell, New Jersey. And, you know, people, well, you know, he omitted it. Well, that's not true. He lied about it because when he was interviewed by uh, Virgil Dalsas from the 19th Squad and then Tommy O'Malley from Missing Persons, they told him, you really have to be 100% honest with us about everything that happened, everything that she did, everything that you did. And what he did is he told them that after she walked out of the apartment, he waited for a couple of hours then went to a birthday party for his nephew at his sister's sister's house in Montclair. Then went to a friend's of friend of his house in West Orange, New Jersey, and then just went home and went to bed. And it wasn't until the next morning that, when she didn't show up at various appointments, people were calling him. Um, that he eventually went. To, it was twenty eight. 30 hours after she's gone that he finally goes to the police. But what he does is he leaves out the fact that he goes to the airport and he flies. And so, you know, so, so he omitted it. No, that's, there are lies of omission and lies of commission. This was a lie of commission because they repeatedly stressed to him that you got to tell us everything, everything she did, everything you did. Dan, let me say, like, the, for the detectives that interviewed Dr. Bierenbaum, did he have, like, that nasty type of attitude that he was much smarter than them, or did he uh, did he receive them as his equal intellectually in the, you know, in the game of, uh, you know, questioning and answering? Um, you know, Virgil Dalsas, very smart guy. He's the first guy that Birnbaum talks to. And, you know, Dalsas tells us, tells us which, un- which unfortunately really can't come out at trial, was that he, that Birnbaum seemed to be, seemed to think he was smarter than 
everybody. Um, Tommy O'Malley from Missing Persons gets involved, I think, about two days later and basically said the same thing, that he was rather condescending, that he, you know, was offended by some of the questions that were being asked. <laughs> but, unfortunately, but unfortunately, when you're on the witness stand, you know, those are feelings that detectives can't testify to. Right. You know, they, they we tried to bring out through both uh, Virgil and Tommy that, you know, th- this was a conversation between equals, but, you know, Birnbaum didn't view it that way. He, he was condescending until 14 years later when they showed up in North Dakota and he almost fainted. I bet he wasn't condescending then. That's no, no, he... He, well, I mean, obviously what he did is he ran back inside his house and called his lawyer and said, there's, there's guys here talking about my wife, you know, find, can you find out what's going on? And that's, you know, within the hour. That was after he cleaned up the mess in his underwear. Then he did that. Then he made that. Hey, Dan, let me ask you, the, the little bit of research I did, I read, it said uh, uh, that you, I think there's a, uh, a quote from you, that uh, there was a loveless and violent marriage and that she was leaving him for another man. That was the night that uh, she was killed. Is, was that ever true? Was that ever proven that she was going to leave him for someone else? Yes. As a matter, matter of fact, she had had two affairs, though both of those men testified at trial. Okay. Um, one was with a real estate executive who she saw for a month or two. And then one was with a professor of psychology, PhD in psychology, had a private practice, was also a teacher. I can't remember where he taught. It was one of the colleges in New York um, where he was a professor. I met him on the train and had actually told a close friend of hers who they were getting their nails done. I believe it was Saturday morning had told her friend that she was going to tell her husband the next morning, which was the fateful Sunday that she was leaving him. And that came out as what's called which, which is a an exception to the hearsay rule called a statement of future intent. And my argument to the jury was that that's exactly what she did. That she said, I'm leaving you. And there were, there, there were some financial shenanigans that his father was allegedly involved in, was a doctor. He was, a, he was a, a medical doctor as well. We never found out if that was true, but she believed it was true and said, told her friend, I'm going to tell him that unless he just lets me walk out the door, that I'm going public with, you know, the financial shenanigans that you and your father have been engaging in. And it was supposedly with Medicare and Medicaid. 
that sounds like a double motive to kill her between the, the he, she's leaving him for someone else or she's leaving the marriage and she's going to blow the whistle on the father. So, uh, right. Right. Like a double uh, motive to kill her. You know, folks, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. And if you're not subscribed to our YouTube, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring the bell, give us a thumbs up. And if you want to support us financially, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And if you want to be a part of the YouTube family for police off the cuff, you see the folks in the chat in the green font, you can join us on YouTube and we have five different levels there. This is Dan, this is a fascinating case. And what, what the, what I want to draw in because near the, the last maybe 15 or 20 minutes of the show, we want to draw a parallel just to the case in California, right? Of the two boys or, uh, Orin and Orson uh, West that were missing for three months before their parents, who had probably killed them, uh, reported them missing. But I don't. I want to stay on this case. But what, what the parallel I want to draw is that, I mean, you've obviously done an extremely thorough investigation. I mean, the fact that you're still remembering names and places is uh, tells me that uh, you stayed sober mostly during this. Uh, this investigation. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Appreciate that, man. Yeah, because you can. He's spitting out the facts pretty good, Billy. He's he can really remember good. dates, times, names. It's like incredible, and and, yeah. and the law too. Just spouting the hearsay rule. That's I mean, it's 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 wonderful. But well, Dan, what I want to draw from you is the difficulty of getting a jury to believe that this man killed his wife without recovering her body well when we started out we began to do first we began to do some research about whether there'd been any nobody homicides prosecuted in manhattan as far as we could tell there had never been one wow but we also do we also did some research across the country and it turns out there was a case a nobody homicide case prosecuted in the late 40s, 1940s, believe it or not, in California, where a guy was convicted. I don't remember of who he killed. It might have actually been his wife. And went up to the California Supreme Court. And the California Supreme Court basically wrote an opinion that was a guidebook for us about how to prove someone is dead without a body. I mean, obviously forensic evidence is helpful. You know, there was no forensic evidence then. He would, the police were precluded from, you know, doing any kind of crime scene forensic search of his apartment. Lawyers wouldn't allow it. Um, so we didn't have a spot of blood. We didn't have anything. But this case in California is, in my recollection, it's a 40 page opinion about what the prosecutors did in California to prove that this person was no longer alive. And it was a guidebook. It was a roadmap for us to follow. And it, 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 it proved that opinion proved invaluable to us to, to show us what we needed to prove by way of evidence, you know, was the person depressed? Now, Gail Katz had been depressed at once in her time, had, had actually been treated for depression. What was her state of mind at the time? 
You know, we had her therapist. She was in a PhD program for in psychology. And as part of her PhD program, she had to see a therapist to learn how to, and, and, and her therapist was like, no, she was not no longer depressed. She was great. She said, day before she disappeared, like I said, she got a manicure. And her therapist says, her therapist, and this is a, probably a quote. Her therapist said, "Oh, and she got she got a mani she got a mani pedi she got a manicure and a pedicure." Her therapist testified. This is as close to a quote as I can get. Suicidal people don't get mani pedis. So these. She had had recently had an IUD implanted. We had her doctor testify. And her therapist, again, testified suicides don't, they're not preparing for active sex lives. Right. <laughs> so these were all things that, you know, we looked for. And many of them had already fallen in our lap because she had never talked to you know, she'd never been in contact with her family again. She was very close with her sister. She was very close with her younger brother. She was very close with her parents. Never talked to them again. Um, her friends, family, school, boyfriend, never seen, never heard from. Um, so, you know, all of that evidence was extremely important. So there's, there was no one piece of evidence that said she's dead. It was witness after witness after witness after witness who testified that, you know, her friends, we were in constant contact. We spoke every day by phone. We saw each other once a week. After that Sunday in August, never heard from her again. Never seen her again. Um, so so you had a really heavy hill to climb. You had a first you know, convince the jury that she was dead. And then you had to convince them that he was the one that killed her. I mean, that's a lot of heavy lifting. Yes. And at the end, the, the defense opening statement, my recollection was keep an open mind. We don't know what happened. We don't know whether she's alive or dead. The defendant's the defense closing statement conceded that she was dead and that she died that day. Wow. But that that that's how powerful the evidence was that she wasn't alive. This was not a woman who was going to drop off the face of the earth, never con never contact another human being, never contact any of her friends, never contact any of her family. This was a woman who was looking forward to getting her PhD, looking forward to life, looking forward to a life without him, looking forward to a life with her psychologist boyfriend. Um, so the, at the end, which kind of shocked me when her attorney who is now a judge sitting in Bronx criminal court in Bronx Supreme Court criminal um, conceded that she was dead and she was dead that day.
Do you, do you think that was a mistake on the part of the defense, Dan? No, I actually think that he would have lost credibility if he had tried to argue to the jury that she was alive somewhere and, you know, just hiding out. Sure. Uh, I, I think that the jurors would have just looked at him and shaken their heads and go, yeah, no. You would have to believe in Martians and that she was abducted based on what you put forward. So I exactly. he conceded. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Dan, I want to just ask you about two pieces of evidence that may or may not be true. I know one of them is 100% true. Was there anyone that saw him carrying a duffel bag with something heavy in it to his car? No, there wasn't. Um, you know, he, he had a car. He did not have a space in that garage. He had a space in a building about a block and a half away. Um, but there was testimony from two girlfriends after um, Karen Canawana. And I can't remember the other one's name. She was also a doctor who was a girlfriend after Karen Canawana, who said that he regularly carried charts, maps, everything in a big duffel bag when he went flying. Okay, part, part two to that is the log that you have to fill out when you fly well, a plane. There's, 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 well, first of all, it was not, it wasn't until about eight to nine months later that Andy Rosenzweig sent people out to first the Teterboro Airport, closest to New York, close to Manhattan. And found nothing. Of course, they should have sent him to Essex County Airport first because that's literally a 10-minute drive from where he grew up in West Orange and literally an eight-minute drive from where I grew up in Verona. So, you know, they they send they send detectives out to um, out to Teterboro. They find nothing. They send detectives out to Essex County Airport. And the first private aviation company they they get to is they said, you know, is this aviation company, and they walk in and it's a man and wife owned business. And they say, you know, do you know someone named Robert Birnbaum? And they say, yes, we do. He flies here all the time. Uh, and they say, well, do you have records going back, you know, in 1985? They say, absolutely. Yes, we do. And there is his rental agreement, and there is what's called a Hobbs meter, which on a plane basically times the um, that it, it times the engine running. It's not flight time; it's how long the engine is running. And they explain to they explain to the detectives, everyone will do all their pre-flight checks; they'll do everything, and then only at the last minute do they start the engine. Because you're paying for engine running time. Wow. And he flew for 1.9 hours that day. So we have now, now there are records of him having flown. Dan, could do you also, when you fly a plane, don't you also have to correspond with the tower when you're going to uh, take off and land? Yes, you do. It, it, and at Essex County Airport, which used to go by the name back then was called Colwell Airport, is a controlled airfield. There is a tower. Um, yes, but you do not have to file a flight plan. You don't have to tell them where you're going, but you have to communicate with the tower. 
and there those communications are not recorded. So, but we have the records, and and did he try to doctor? Did he try to doctor the? Well, that there's 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 another thing. Um, pilots keep flight their own private flight logs. You know, it, it's a book which basically you write in dates, times, and flight hours, and if you go somewhere, where you went. Uh, we were told by people who flew with him, uh, Stephanie Youngblood being one of them from Las Vegas, that he was he religiously kept a flight log every time he flew. There's no requirement by the, the FAA doesn't require pilots to keep a flight log. They recommend it. But we were told not by just by Stephanie Youngblood, but by other people who flew with him, that he was religious in keeping his flight log. After he was charged, um, Cesar Rocco and I sat down and said, you know, we had, we'd, we'd had two witnesses who told us that they had looked at his flight log for that day and it had been altered. That the date had been altered to a different date. So Steve and I sit down and say, what do you think we should do? Should we subpoena the doctor? for the flight log. And we said, why not? And we did. We called uh, his lawyer and said, uh, Scott, we have a subpoena. Um, we want to know if we can serve it on you or we're gonna, we can, we'll serve it on the doctor. And he goes, what are you looking for? And I said, this subpoena will speak for itself. Do you want us to serve the doctor? Do you want us to serve you? And he goes, serve me. And I said, well, somebody be over there in about 20 minutes. So we served the doctor with, we served the doctor through his lawyer with a subpoena for the flight log, thinking if it exists and they have it, they're on an obligation to give it to us. Um, he freaks out, calls me up and says, we're going to move to suppress. I mean, we're going to move to quash and you're going to lose. And I said, well, you're going to move to quash and we're going to win. And if you have it, you're going to have to turn it over. And we go to Judge Snyder and Judge Snyder looks at me and says, are you crazy? You can't subpoena a defendant. And I said, well, Judge, we can. And they'll <laughs> we can. We did. They'll file a motion to quash. We will respond and you will enforce the subpoena. And that's exactly what happened. And the day the subpoena was enforced, the in the, in the hallway outside of her courtroom, Scott Greenfield, his attorney, turns over the flight law in a an unmarked manila envelope. And of course, I want to rip the envelope open and look at it but you know we just calmly walk to the elevator get on the elevator go down to my office open it up and those two witnesses were correct he had entered the flight for that day but went back and changed the date we actually what, what, what was it that made it that the judge ruled in your favor but if, if the judge said you can't Subpoena a defendant. Was it based on the information you had from the two witnesses about the law? Well, it's it's called the 
whether the act of producing it is incriminating. It's called the, it, there's an, what's called an act of production privilege. It's, it's, it's part of the Fifth Amendment privilege. But we told the judge, said, listen, we're not using his act of production. We don't care that he's that his lawyer is producing it because we have two witnesses who will be able to able to authenticate it independent of the doctors producing it. They actually went to the appellate division and we won in the appellate division. And we got down to the office, sat down, opened up, literally ripped the envelope open, opened up to the page. And indeed, it had been altered to a different date. We had it forensically examined and the forensic examiner said, there's no doubt that these are two different inks put on at two different times. Absolutely. That, that was pretty powerful. Sure. Very powerful. Phil, I just want you to do, we're going to go to a quick commercial and we'll come back to Dan Bibb talking about the Robert Bierenbaum. Uh, well, it's actually, he's the killer of his wife, Gail Katz. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, Dan, one of the things that's amazing about this case is that I think it was last year or the year before Bierenbaum came up for parole. He served 20 years, he's what, a 20 year to life sentence. And he confessed to doing the murder exactly the way you said he did it. Then he did. And he actually had, he actually won uh, a an appeal of his parole hearing. So I had a, he had another parole hearing couple of months ago and he he again affirmed the fact that he had killed her and unfortunately for the family they're gonna have to go through this again in 2022 um but the the first i've read them you know i have the minutes of both parole hearings the first hearing was the commissioners i thought were very amateurish in their questioning of him um basically accepting what he's told them at face value the that he just lost his temper you know for some reason or other and the second hearing the parole commissioners were quite a bit more probing and were not accepting of his explanations of what happened that day you know Dan, this case is so uh, fascinating i'm sorry I'm, I'm i feel like i'm feeding back here uh it's so fascinating and i wish i would have not tied this other case into it, but since we had promised our listeners that the case of the boys in California of Orin and Orson West, uh, I, I want to I want you to watch a little bit of this. Uh, this sure. is a district attorney from um, Bakersfield, California, and she's letting everyone know that, in fact, Orin and Orson West, who um, the parents reported missing on December 21st, 2020, had in fact been dead three months before that also came out to assist in looking for the boys. 
but to no avail. They were not located. One week later, crucial information came to light that necessitated the involvement of the Bakersfield Police Department and the Kern County District Attorney's Office. Law enforcement worked diligently, hundreds of hours in the next 12 months looking for the boys. This morning, I'm saddened to announce that the investigation has revealed that Warren and Orson West are deceased. The investigation has also revealed that they died three months before their adopted parents. However, I am pleased to announce that this week, the Kern County Grand Jury indicted Trezell and Jacqueline West, adopted parents. Five murder. Charges them both with murder, with the victim being Orrin Wise. Charges murder. Charges felony child abuse. Well, you see that that they were both um, parents were indicted for two counts of murder, and the fact that they reported the boys missing uh, three months after the district attorney found out that they were in fact dead. Uh, this is another case, of course, of a homicide um, without the recovery of the bodies. Do you have any comments on that? First, let me tell you, this is probably one of the most heartbreaking stories I have ever heard. You know, physical abuse of children is probably one of the worst crimes that you can ever contemplate. A homicide of a child is the worst, one of the worst crimes you could ever contemplate. But analytically, that that having been said, analytically, it it is proving the death of a child without the corpus delicti, without the body, is different than proving the death of an adult. First of all, because an adult has the capacity to leave of their own free will and to disappear of their own free will. Children are dependent on adults for their survival. These kids, they're not walking off on their own. They're not getting on a plane. They're not flying off to California. Uh, so when you're talking about the deaths of children, it's, to me, you know, just analytically speaking, and it may sound callous, it's easier to prove that they're deceased without the body than it is with an adult. Because children, they're dependent on adults to survive, and they wouldn't survive without adults. 
Yeah, hundred percent. I think that's been mentioned in this case that um, you know what, what you just said—that kids can't go flying around, they can't leave—and these two boys were uh, four and three years old at the time they allegedly disappeared. And the parents, I mean, just their story uh, and the way they re interacted with the press and with everyone else was just not believable whatsoever. And it, I'm going to just play that's, a little bit of their. That's, uh, that's before you before you do that 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 played an important role in the Birnbaum case, and that that plays an important role in every case without a body is how the the perpetrators interact with the people around not only not only law enforcement but the people around them you know their friends and their relatives uh that speaks volumes like i said birnbaum's interactions with uh all of his friends um and her friends were was extremely important evidence no i mean oh, I, let me uh, let me play a little bit of this and then. So helpless, and seeing everybody out here really looking and helping out really means a lot. So, tell us what happened the night before. Oh, okay. From our yard. It was cold. I was gonna make a fire. It's a lot of wood. Area right here next to our house. I open up the back gate. I'm throwing wood, bringing it inside the house. My wife's inside. My Again, you can just see that um, he—he's not believable. He's got his hands folded across his chest. He's talking about getting retrieving wood when a four and a three-year-old went missing. Very first of all, this this is an extremely defensive posture. You guys know that. Yeah. You know, this 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 speaks volumes. You know, and he's talking about wood. She was right. so fidgety, she could not sit still for a second it was unbelievable so i uh, obviously they were displaying uh you know body language of people that were defensive as you just stated and very nervous it's um you know the whole thing also the the husband whose name is trezell he searched a whole 10 minutes for the kids in his car after they went missing which is also not the actions of someone that's searching for a missing four and three-year-old uh, just, just horrendous. And all of those things will be submitted as, as evidence as you, you know, you went into great detail in your a homicide case. There are so many things in this case. Well, the other thing is that the, the other kids, they had two biological children and two other adopted kids took part in the abuse of these, the four-year-old and the three-year-old potentially even the homicide of the four-year-old and the three-year-old which is so, so horrendous. And when everyone that watches this show is following these two boys, they hear about this. They just can't even understand how something like this could happen. We in the law enforcement world, we've seen this before and we understand it. We don't, you know, it's no easier to take, but we understand it.
you know, the, the part of the problem is maybe we've become jaded. Too many yeah. bodies, too many bodies. Um, the, the inhumanity that we've seen over our careers uh, is it's unbelievable that, but still the, a three and four year old, uh, I, it's, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's extremely difficult to comprehend help helpless children. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it is incredible that, uh, in California, people can adopt kids to make money like these people did. Uh, it was like an adoption mill almost, you know, that they were getting paid because the husband had no clear uh, source of income other other than, you know, adopting kids. And that, I think, is extremely disturbing that someone in whatever jurisdiction it is, again, this is California where all kinds of crazy shit happens, right? that you can adopt kids. I mean, in New York, I think you get paid for having foster children. Isn't that true, Dan? Yes. Yes, it is. It but is. I don't think you get, once you adopt kids, I don't believe once you, you get Once paid. you adopt kids, you're there, you're done. You're, you're done getting, there's no gravy train once you adopt them. Apparently in California, if you can, if a kid is like has special needs or something like that, they still get paid when they adopt children of that ilk, you know, uh, I don't know if ilk was the right word of that type. And, um, public assistance. Had if you have multiple children that increases public, public assistance in New York, not sure about California. I think the point that you're making Billy about, uh, these kids might've been special needs. So there was some other stipend that they were able to, uh, you know, throw some money their way. But I, I know that if you, uh, if you're getting public assistance in New York, uh, the more children you have, uh, the larger the amount. I mean, I don't know how much more it is, but uh, so again, they, they they were cashing in on these kids. That's the motive. Uh, you know, uh, it's disgusting what happened. And uh, that comment that that woman Margaret put up about why would they wear masks uh, outside in public? Uh, again, uh, again, their posture. She was nervous. The masks uh, helped them to to tell the lie. You can't really see their faces and. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, their, their, their conduct, um, is going to, their conduct post post reporting them after they reported them missing is going to be important evidence. Like Bill, you had mentioned before about, um, you know, the, the guy had spent maybe a hot 10 minutes looking for the kids. Birnbaum's conduct was the same thing. He had to be, basically forced to go and make posters and go and look for uh, his wife in the park and his, you know, throw up his hands and said, he, he would say stupid stuff like, she's probably living on a beach in California. That that was a piece of evidence in the right. trial. One of, one of her friends says, yeah, we're trying to get him to go and look for his wife. And he's like, yeah, she's living on a beach in California somewhere. Well, so because their, then their intellectually, conduct, their, their intellectually he knew she was dead. <laughs> you know, he knew she was dead. So like, to him, what am I searching for? You know, 
but he didn't want to let, let you know that she was dead. I and guess that you're... was one of the uh, proactive or reactive lies based on his conversations post. Well, it was re- you're right, Phil. It, exactly. My my summation arguments were there were reactive and proactive lies repeated, you know, lies that he would say to react to people asking him, you know, or, or accusing him. And then there were proactive lies where he would just lie because he felt he had the need to. And con- conduct, post-disappearance conduct is also important and will be important in the case against the parents. But in Birnbaum, you know, he's going out to, uh, Bill, I don't know if you remember, there was a notor- notorious disco out in the Hamptons called Marrakesh. Yes. Back yes. in the 80s. Yep. He was at Marrakesh every weekend. Well, I, now, we knew before the indictment that he was out there, but we didn't know who he was partying with. We had actually people who he knew, her friends, saw him out there until after the post indictment, the people who he rented the house from called us and told us about this. And and they testified about his post disappearance conduct. You know his his wife's been missing for no more than a week, and he's dancing his ass off at a disco America in the East End. Wow! So, you know, post disappearance conduct is is can be devastating evidence, and I'm sure it's going to be devastating evidence against. These parents, and I'm sure, and I'm sure the DA's office knows that. Well, I think the DA's office is has had you know a big head start. These are the legal aid attorneys that are representing uh, Trizel and Jacqueline West, and they start. They had a press conference the other day, and they were arguing about stuff like you know, uh, it wasn't fair that they brought this grand jury t- uh, together, and uh, a grand jury is not a trial. It is just a, you know, a, an instrument used by the government and we're going to have our day in court. But like they seemed very amateurish in addressing these issues. You watched a little bit of the uh, press conference of the uh, district attorney from Bakersfield, California, and she's a super professional. And uh, she was very clear and concise about what she spoke about. She and- also appeared to be very emotional. Yes. You know, she also appeared to be holding back on the emotions, you know. So, I mean, this, this, hey, listen, you got kids. You know what you're talking about with a homicide of a child. If you've had children, you know, you know, uh, yeah, you know. Yep. And you know, the lawyer, the defense attorneys, you know, I tried not to participate in in the press conferences that the office would do about my cases, although I would be ordered to sometimes simply because I thought it was inappropriate for us to be talking about something when the guy's just been accused, uh, hasn't been convicted. Uh, and same thing with defense attorneys. I think the best thing you do is you have no comment 
And this is we're at the beginning of a process that has to play out. You know, Dan, there seems to be a trend right now where people want to try things in the press and on TV and social media. I mean, we covered a lot of the Alec Baldwin thing, the shooting. Right. And he feels that he has to go and comment all the time. And he doesn't realize all of that stuff is going to be played at absolutely at the civil trial. But if there's a criminal yeah. trial, it'll also be played at the criminal trial. And he he just thinks he has to go in on, on social media and talk about this. I mean, it's it's so stupid that they, that he does that. Well, I'm not so sure he's the brightest bulb on the circuit, Bill. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, you know, listen, the, I don't think any of the Bulban guys are all that bright. And if I'm his lawyer, I was going to say that. I'm going to gag him. Yeah. I'm going to gag him. His lawyer should be kicking him in the ass and saying, shut the hell up. What's wrong? You're digging yourself a deeper hole, you know, but I don't know. I guess he's just, he's so when I, when I first, when I first started in the DA's office, um, my boss was a guy by the name of Warren Murray and Warren Murray had rules. It was Warren Murray's rules. And rule number one is no witness, no case. Right? No evidence, no case. Okay. Rule number seven is every defendant says something about the crime he's accused of. And rule number seven A is whatever a defendant says will help you in prosecuting that case. And to this day, Rule 7 and 7A are 100% true. Always. When a defendant opens their mouth, it's good for the prosecution. You know, Dan... If it's not an admission, if it's not a confession, if it's some, you know, nonsensical exculpatory statement... It can be used by the prosecution in some way or another. So, you know, Dan, Dan, I think that even lawyers uh, are going on in the media. We covered the Gabby Petito case, and her attorney Stephen Bertolino. That guy couldn't stay off TV, and he and he got he got eviscerated by Ashley Banfield on News Nation. Right? Just, yeah, yeah. He just she destroyed him, and I was like, why is this guy going on TV? This and a journalist. I mean, I totally. I mean, a journalist shouldn't be able to destroy an attorney, but she did. You, you know what? I think he needed his five minutes of fame. He obviously uh, was never in that kind of public view. Uh, the cameras. He got caught up in the cameras, and and she really she did the job on him for sure. But so I'll tell I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny story. You know, you you guys know what perp walks are, right? Of course. <laughs> Of course. So after the Birnbaum verdict, uh, we go down to my office uh, and there's there's three lawyers. There was me, Steve Sirocco, and a guy by the name Adam Kaufman. He was our third seat. He basically was the guy carrying the, the bags. <laughs> so we go down to the office and, of course, there's like a hundred people waiting for us at Four Lenies. And we've there was a paralegal who was diabetic outside my office who was 
having problems with his diabetes and we had to take care of him. So we're delayed. My phone's ringing off the hook. Where the hell are you guys? Where the hell are you guys? And we're like, we're taking care of a guy who's potentially going into a diabetic coma. We we get, you know, we get the medical guys from the office down. We get EMS down. And, you know, this our main concern is now we got to take care of this guy. So he finally, you know, he finally gets some food in him, finally comes around and everything. But they, they take him to the hospital. So now we're delayed a half hour, 45 minutes. And, of course, we're looking out the window and there's still press everywhere. But they're mostly in front of 100 Center Street. So Steve says to me, says, what do you think? Should we perp walk ourselves? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean perp walk ourselves? He goes, no. <laughs> you know, we usually go out the back door and run over to Forlini's to avoid the press. Why don't all three of us walk out the front door and just right into the cameras? <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's what we did. We walked out the front door of 100 Center Street into the waiting cameras who were walking three abreast, you know, victory and walking down, you know, Center Street towards White Street to take the right and go to Forlini's. And they're, the cameras are backing us, backing up and the reporters are sticking mics on our faces. And we're just laughing, going, we finally got to Forlini's. I was like, I can't believe we just perp walked ourselves. <laughs> That's great. You know, Dan, you gave such great uh, information about this. And I, I think it was fascinating how you found that California case that you referred to as the roadmap and how yeah. to prosecute a, a homicide case without a recovered body. I mean, fascinating. And that you, I you mean, know, I, and here's, I, you know, there, there's, there's someone out there that deserves credit for that. And I just can't remember who it is, but it's not me. You sound like Alec Baldwin. <laughs> no, no, that's called blame. Yeah, yeah. I and know someone is guilty. I know it's not me. <laughs> I know it's not me, right? I there was someone I don't remember who it was turned us on to that case and said, "Hey, you guys got to read this this case from the '40s and from California." And I remember. You know, like, how the hell would you know about a case from the late 40s in California of a nobody homicide? And I don't remember who it was. You know, maybe Steve does. All I may, You know what? I may have to call Steve tomorrow and say, who turned us on to that California case? But you know, some, you know, somebody yeah. did. I, I like to I would like to say it was, you know, hours of late night research, legal research, you know, with, you know, black coffee and no nah, it wasn't it was somebody said hey there's this california case you guys could read yeah but that was absolutely uh integral to the prosecution because oh, it it was. You know, it was. the format on which you had, you had to prove death first and then you know who did it so that was really really interesting stuff i, I think uh you you really uh this was some case i can't even imagine uh all, all the twists and turns. and, and You know, Dan, I, just to mention the, the 2020 thing, 
I don't think 2020 let you and Sirocco talk enough. They yeah, got really. all fluffed out. I was like, exactly. these are the stars of the case. And they had the family on more than you guys. I, I'm, I, think, I thought they did a good job. Um, I, Elaine Katz, you know, I'm okay. Elaine and What, what Elaine made you do it in four years, though, uh, Dan? Pardon? What made them do it like, I mean, the case was tried in like 2000, no? Because he, because he was coming up for parole. Okay, okay. In 2020. Makes sense. And, and you know, when uh, I found out the day before, actually part of my interview, one, of, one part of my interview was at Forlini's. One part of my interview was at the airport, and the other part was at this library in Midtown, an engineer's library in Midtown Manhattan. That was where Steve and I were together. Um, and well, I, I lost my thought. <laughs> Listen, ABC doesn't give two hours to just any, uh, you know, any case. I think that well, that, the, uh, the, the, the day before my interview with Forlini's, I got an, I got a text message from a friend of mine who's still in the DA's office that said Birnbaum confessed in his parole hearing. I, I like, I nearly fell over. I got on the phone. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? I said, who knows this? What's, how do you know this? She, she says, call Elaine Katz. So I call Elaine and she goes, I'll, I just got the minutes. I can't believe it. She emailed me the minutes. And then at the interview, right towards the end of that interview, they shoved the minutes in front of me. And I said, yeah. I, I got these yesterday and I said, it's stunning. I said, I never thought that he would ever, ever admit that he killed his wife. Well, that's what uh, these hearings, they look for remorse a lot of times. And oh, if no, if, lying, if, you read, if you read these minutes, there's no remorse from them. Well, None. Okay. You, you, you know, and the thing is, I know, you know, I've been doing this for almost 40 years on both sides. You read a transcript. How do you get, how do you get emotion out of a transcript? How can you what, tell? What I'm trying guy? to say is that if, uh, I, I'm sure that the, the inmates will study, you know, previous uh, parole hearings and stuff. And, and they know that if you lie to the parole board and say you didn't do it when there's an overwhelming amount of evidence, that's the point I was trying to make. Not so yeah. much remorse. I shouldn't have said, use the word remorse, but I guess, you know, the point is if they know, you know, it's a slam dunk case and, and they believe, you know, cause they get to review it and now you're going to go in there and lie to their faces. You know, the chances of them letting you out aren't very good. Well, here's, here's, here's one of the things, an observation you know, I, I get notified from the DA's office when guys I sent away get released. And I had a guy, my first cold case was also from 1985, believe it or not. I prosecuted, I tried it in 96 or 97. It's my first cold. That's, that's what got me involved. That case is a homicide of a lawyer from the 13th precinct. And that's what got me interested in cold cases. I tried the case of conviction. Um, the guy gets 20 to life. He's always denied, 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 denied. Um, he got out. 
you know, a the bank robbers from the bank robbers from the Upper West Side. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They, those guys, they they never admitted anything. They're out. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I I can't even tell you how many homicides that have they they've gone to parole board. They've gone to Andy Cuomo parole boards. Yeah, yeah. And continue to deny, and they got out. And I thought that you know, with the appropriate amount of contrition and remorse that Birnbaum would get out. And interestingly enough, I know his lawyer very well. She's a friend. And we have, I've seen her since she's represented him. I don't talk to her about it. She actually didn't want me to know about it because she thought I'd be mad at her for representing him. And I'm like, you're a lawyer. You got to make a living. You know, he's paying you. I'm okay. You know, but we don't talk about it. I said, you know, I don't, I don't want to know what she's telling, what he's telling her and what she's telling him. But, you know, if you read these hearing minutes, especially the first one, as matter of fact, as you could possibly be, I got angry. I strangled her. <laughs> what did you do after that? Well, um, rigor mortis set in. I had to wait for it to ease. I folded her up and put her in a duffel bag, carried her out to my car, I drove out to the airport, drove, flew over the ocean, threw her out. Does he admit to that part of it about throwing her oh, out? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess Amazing. the logs, everything, there's such an overwhelming amount of evidence, but uh, who knows? I don't know. When we were trying the case, you know, when you try a case, you know, you, you get a sense of how how evidence is going in. And at the end, we were, all three of us, Adam and Steve and I, we were satisfied that we had tried the best possible case that we could have, that the evidence could not have gone in any better that we would never have had a better chance at a conviction. And if we lost, we lost, you know, sometimes as I would tell younger assistants who were afraid to go to trial, I would say, Hey, sometimes you got to go with what you got. If you convince somebody committed the crime, you, and you think you have the evidence, you got to go with it. And that's what that's what our thinking was, that the case is not going to get any better. It's not going to get any worse. As a matter of fact, there were witnesses that didn't remember a lot of things. And we actually had to put in police reports as what's what are called past recollection recorded. So, you know, it was it was a tough trial. Uh, but justice was done. Unbelievable. You know, Dan, we're at almost an hour and 20 minutes, and I didn't want to even keep you more than an hour, but it was, so, fa- it was so fascinating. Absolutely. And, I mean, your recollection is very impressive. Uh, you're a fantastic lawyer. You were a fantastic prosecutor. And I want, and you're a fantastic guest. I really want to thank you for coming on well, the show tonight. I'm also a fantastic defense attorney. Yeah. There you I, go. Convinced, I convinced the Manhattan DA's office – to dismiss a gun case, gun case, Manhattan, in Manhattan, 
for and my client was active duty special warfare military and this case threatened his career in the military he made a mistake by bringing his gun into new york but you know, I and, and the thing is, when the case was dismissed the other day, I thanked the Manhattan DA's office. I thanked the two assistant DA's that worked on the case that they weren't marching in a lockstep to, you know, oh my God, anybody has a gun's got to go to prison. Um, and the thing is, the you know, the guy is a uh, senior chief in the Navy, and he's his his. His uh, enlistment was up March 29th. If this wasn't dismissed, he was out the door. Wow. And I convinced him to dismiss the case, even though, you know, he was subject to non-judicial punishment, NJP, as they call it in the military. And it's going to have some effect on his career. He's he's going to re-up and he's going to stay in the Navy. That's um, so, you know, there's... You know, there's cases like Robert Birnbaum where, you know, you do justice. And then there's cases like this on the other side. I was just going to say that. Justice served on the other side. When you're on the other side and justice is served, you know. And and this guy, I mean, this this guy is a hero. And he made a mistake. And under Vance, you know, it would have been, fuck you. You know, we're going to the grand jury. Uh, as you know, I'm not a fan of Alvin Bragg. No. But in this situation, I am. I did. Did you see the new thing in the New York Times today where they, the new marijuana dispensaries, they want to give precedence to people who've taken a collar for, for weed in the past. They want to give the businesses to them and their families. Well, they've experienced, Bill. What the hell? Right. But they were wrongfully, they were done wrong by the criminal justice system. So let's give them the first... Uh, who, where is this thinking coming from? I don't know. You know, hey, listen, legalizing marijuana, I think is stupid, but it's done. What's done is done. But, you know, prioritizing, you know, prioritizing giving, you know, marijuana licenses to people who broke the law, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No, it doesn't to me either. You no, know, and and you know, the whole the whole thing about you know marijuana, you're sending people to jail for marijuana. Nobody went to jail for a little, for you know, misdemeanor possession of marijuana. As a matter of fact, the only person I ever know who went to prison for marijuana was one of my clients. <laughs> he got he got collared for fifty with fifty two pounds in Manhattan. And uh, I didn't represent him on that case until until after he got collared with uh, 19 pounds in New Jersey. Uh, you know, he he was a marijuana dealer. You'll love this story. So <laughs> I actually I get him two years on the New York case and 18 months concurrent on the New Jersey case. So the New Jersey case now he's already been sentenced in New York, and they got to bring him down from state prison in New York. And the judge I'm we're in front of, I know in, in in Hackensack, I know very well. And you know, he's talking to my client at sentencing, and my my client, it's a black guy, very smart guy, 
very smart. Graduate of Penn State. Scholarship boxer. Penn State. So he, so the judge says, she goes, so, Mr. So-and-so, did, you know, did you get a high school diploma? I'm like, judge, the guy's black. It doesn't mean him. he didn't go to college. But I didn't say anything. He goes, uh, yes, Your Honor, I did. Did you go any, you know, your regular high school diploma or a GED? I'm like, ooh, that's... You know, come on, Joe. <laughs> you know, and he goes, no, I have a regular high school diploma. Did you go any further in school? Yes, Your Honor. I have a college degree. The judge is like, really? Is it me? Like, really? And I'm like, yes. Where did you go to school? Well, I went to Penn State on a full scholarship. <laughs> so it's like what <laughs> and, well I was a I, you know I, I went to I, it was a boxing scholarship you know and uh, she goes so when did you get out and blah 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 so he, have you ever held a legitimate job he goes well I tried the pro boxing ranks but it wasn't for me so what did you do after that I said he goes I went into the weed business. <laughs> this is negotiating, please. So, you know, no matter what he says, he's getting 18 months. <laughs> it's, it's, it's hysterical. The judge is looking at me going, just come, come up to the bench. Come up to the, so the two lawyers were coming to the bench. He goes, are you kidding me? Really? I said, no. He has a, he has a degree. As a matter of fact, he's got a cum laude degree from Penn State. He's a very smart guy. And you know what you know what business he's in now? What? The weed business. The legal weed business. <laughs> legal weed business. It's unbelievable. But he didn't get he didn't get preference. No. Yeah. Very rapidly, thanks for the five dollar super chat. Question Can the judge have the lawyers replaced in the California City Boys case so the parents can't appeal for ineffective counsel? Look, they the, the attorneys haven't even they haven't even got into the courtroom, and everyone's already saying they're ineffective counsel. So yeah, but they can't do that. You know, right saying stu saying stupid stuff to the press is not ineffective assistance of counsel. Right. Um, ineffective ineffective assistance of counsel happens in the courtroom. Good point. And then then it could result in a, an appeal, not probably having them right. removed as counsel. Well, it's, it, you know, I mean, you can be ineffective for any number of reasons, inside, both inside and outside the courtroom. Saying stupid things to the press is not one of them. No, no. You know, uh, I you think, know, Dan, I think we got to uh, we got to cut yeah. this off. We're almost on an hour. We're coming up on an hour and a half soon. <laughs> I know, you know, I know we could talk all night, but uh, our fans are like, actually, they're still hanging out. This is interesting people. shit. That's why it is very interesting. You were, and you were fantastic. I mean, uh, if I get in trouble, Dan, I'm going to be calling that number. <laughs> Joe Murray, Joe Murray. Sorry, I know you're. Yeah, yeah hands, Joe, I love, I, I love Joe Murray. Forget about Joe. He's good man, I know he's Joe's good real people. Busy with all the people love, trying I, to find, you know all the cops that I love get Joe. vaccinated. I heard he's representing all of them. Are they really going to think of firing those cops? That's crazy. I don't know. Right? It is crazy, especially now since they're all saying no masks. You can go and eat. Well, you can go and eat in a restaurant without vaccines. You can, you know. 
but yeah, I, I love Joe Murray. Joe, yeah, Joe, Joe and I actually, Joe and I tried a case together years ago. <laughs> it was hysterical. Well, I, you know, it was a case in federal court in, in Brooklyn where the, where the, the crimes on video and our clients on video committing the crime. And we kept the jury out for like seven hours. You know, that Dan, was, Joe Murray's the only guy whose life benefited by a stupid decision. Yeah. Right? Yeah, he yeah. never became a lawyer if he didn't make that stupid decision to go and punch that guy and break his jaw in the 10th squad. <laughs> yeah, I, and I know him too. Wow. I know him very well too. Uh, how, how you know, and you know, was, and and you know what that guy that guy I always thought was a good guy. You know why why Joe had to go bust his jaw up? I don't know. <laughs> Murray yeah, and I, did, you know, we never really talked about it. To know that story of Joe Murray and his uh, his collar on duty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Busting Phil, the guy's Phil, final words. Final words, Dan Bibb, thank you so much for coming on and talk about this case. This was really intriguing, interesting. I don't know what other adjectives to throw at it, but uh, I know there's a lot of heavy lifting to get that conviction. Uh, you really enlightened us on how you get a conviction on a nobody homicide. Uh, let's hope and pray that in the other case, the Orin and um, I forget Orson, the other kids, or Orin Orson, Orson, Orson West, West yeah. the, uh, yeah. that that case leads to a conviction and those people are uh, sent away for a very long time. Those two savages um, just as a reminder tomorrow night, 9 PM, we're going to be on with Tommy Dades, uh, the encyclopedia retired first grade detective of organized crime. The uh, guy, on- if there's, there's, there's no one in New York who knows more about OC than Tommy Dades. You know, Tom, so we're talking about the, mafia I, don't, I don't know him personally, but I know his reputation. Yeah, well, we're going to be. If you, know, if you want to know about OC, you got to listen to him. Very good. Yeah. That's the truth. That is the truth. And we're going to be dissecting uh, the Impolito and Caracappa case. Uh, the mob cops, they were two NYPD detectives that sold their shields to the mob and were uh, actually contract killers. It was the largest, uh, uh, d- disgraceful, uh, I don't even know what else to call it, uh, scandal in the NYPD history. Uh, so we're going to be taking that one apart tomorrow night, nine. Tune in, folks. Uh, thank you very much to Jimmy Calandra for having us on his show. Yeah, he was great. Early thank you, Jimmy. 7 p.m. I saw yeah. a few people in the comments that came over from his uh, from his show, and they subscribed to us. Thank you very much. Uh, keep up the good work, Jimmy, and hope to collaborate with you again real soon. And Gina uh, G, thank you for the $10 super chat and all the love for Joe Murray. Joe Murray just showed up out of the woodwork. Look at him. <laughs> he's, he's in the chat. He heard us talking about him, I guess. That's, that's amazing, is, isn't it? Everyone was burning. And yeah. then he does, he shows up and he says, I love Dan Bibb. What is this, a love fest? Dan, <laughs> final words. <laughs> Great talking to you guys. Uh, have me on anytime. You were fantastic. Any subject. I'm a- I'm going to be calling you again. <laughs> hey, listen, I can pontificate with the best of them. Uh, even you, about you just, things you just proved that for an hour and a half. <laughs> even even about things I know absolutely nothing about. <laughs> That's great. So I'm folks, sure you have a great opinion. Thank you so much for listening tonight, folks. All you guys that from Jimmy Calandra's station that subscribe to Police Off the Cuff, and thank all our fans and everyone for listening. And Dan Bibb, tonight, our unbelievable guest. You were fantastic. Good night, everybody. All right, boys. Good to see you guys. Same here, Dan. 